From Verge headquarters in Indianapolis, I'm Matt Hunkler with Powder Keg Igniting Startups. And in the next 45 minutes, you'll get a glimpse into the mind of an expert venture capitalist who became an entrepreneur and a startup CEO herself, but then came back to VC with a new perspective and even more experience, which we were lucky enough to capture in this candid conversation. But it's really, really helpful for me to just remove the noise in my head. And I find when I'm thinking about writing something, I go deeper into my learning cycle and I'm able to sort through the noise in my head more clearly. And so, and, and I just, it makes, me, it makes me feel like I'm in the flow. So everyone has their creative flow. So what I would say is figuring out what that is to get you out of the back-to-back, -back, constant interruptions, mobile devices, which I have a hard time doing personally. If there's something that does that for you, and for it may be, for me it's writing and running, but it may be, sitting around and dancing or listening to music or, you know, but I find like those solitary, like we all have creative activities, even if we don't think of ourselves as creative, I find those to be really valuable. That's Kara Nortman, co-founder of Seedling and now partner at Upfront Ventures, a Los Angeles-based venture fund that invests internationally and has invested in companies you've probably heard of. So companies like Bill Me Later, which sold for a billion dollars to eBay, or TrueCar, which sold for 1.3 billion, and of course, Ulta Beauty, which IPO'd. And in this interview, I'm gonna talk with her about her journey into venture capital, then into entrepreneurship, and then back again to VC. So it's really from that unique perspective that you're going to hear some of Kara's greatest lessons, not just in entrepreneurship, but in investment as well. So it's really cool to kind of put on those different hats and listen to those different perspectives in this conversation. That's all coming up on Powder Keg Igniting Startups, where every week we share the untold stories of innovation, leadership, and technology beyond Silicon Valley. This episode of Powder Keg is brought to you by our good friends at Developer Town. Now, in case you're just tuning in to Powder Keg or haven't been following along to our other stories in previous episodes of Powder Keg, let me tell you a little bit about what Developer Town is. At its core, Developer Town is a team of the best designers, developers, and marketers who are going to challenge and test your ideas, get products validated, and take a truly integrated approach to designing and launching products with traction. Traction being the key word there. The thing about Developer Town is that they understand how to gather the right research and create an MVP before you invest in development. Now, in case you're not indoctrinated into the lean startup methodology, MVP here stands for minimum viable product and it's so so important whether you're a startup or a large company that you're getting that minimum viable product before investing further into development and developer town does just that with their in-house team now i've got partner and senior designer darren shapurji who happens to be a good friend of mine and a good friend of verge and the shows so he's here to explain how the mvp was created for one of their clients waterly which is a software tool that helps water system companies organize and manage their data and generate reposts. As we've been designing even the MVP, we've done some research that said, here's all the possible uh, benefits of this, of this product, Waterly. One of the things we were unsure about was, well, of all these benefits and features that we could put into it, what is most valuable to our potential users? We had like a list of eight or nine, but we need to scale that down to three or four. So Developer Town and the team at Waterly knew what they wanted in the app, but wanted to make sure that was actually what the customers needed. 
It's classic customer development. It's a page straight out of the Lean Startup playbook. And what Developer Town's team actually created was a test that they took out to their beta users and it listed all of the possible features for the app. Then they tasked those beta users to order these features of importance to them and then explain why they had ordered them in that particular preference. So we went around and got a consensus of what was most important to these potential users and why. And then we also sent out, did an email campaign of research as well to test all of their current customers, not ones that are beta testers, with this idea and had huge conversion rates of opening and going to a fake website we created to then click, yeah, I'd like to buy this product and based on different feature sets. And so it kind of, we got a lot of data back saying like, well, here's what we would need to include to make an MVP product essentially. Whether you're a startup, a scale up or a big enterprise company, creating your MVP is one of the most pivotal parts in the process of product creation. And Developer Town approaches this with the customer at the center, creating the best possible foundation for apps to grow. Interested in learning more about Developer Town? Visit www.developertown.com slash powder keg. That's developertown.com slash powder keg for more information. Developer Town, start something. To Karen Nortman, so much lies beyond our comfort zones. For her, True entrepreneurs need to dig past their limitations to make the impossible possible. But for this to happen, entrepreneurs must have resilience, self-awareness, and passion for what they do. As I mentioned before, Kara has a unique perspective because she's not only the co-founder of the revolutionary toy company Seedling, where she currently still serves as a chairman, but she's also partnered Upfront Ventures, which is an LA-based venture fund that invests internationally and has invested in companies like Bill Me Later, True Car, and Ulta Beauty. We recorded this interview in person at Upfront Ventures in Santa Monica, California. Kara Nortman is a Princeton undergrad, Stanford MBA, She's a skier and rode at Princeton as well. She had five years of VC experiences at Battery Ventures before launching her startup and then later getting back into VC. She has M&A experience working with companies like Morgan Stanley and IAC, but she also has operating experience. You know, she helped run parts of City Search and Urban Spoon. She's got tons of product management experience. She was on the board at Hatch Labs, which later helped launch Tinder. She's also a mother of three and civically engaged. Uh, she's a blogger, she's a writer, she's an expert thinker. Uh, you can find Kara on Twitter at at Kara Nortman on Twitter. She blogs regularly at VentureInside.com. This conversation covers a lot of different topics and I love just how many different perspectives you get just in this one conversation. But some of my favorite parts of this conversation were some of the pivotal moments that Kara shared about her evolution into a top-tier entrepreneur. Uh, but we also talk a little bit about passion and why it's so important, not just to entrepreneurs, but to VCs and other investors as well. We talk a little bit about her love of learning and the role that Discovery played in her achievements, as well as some of the achievements in the entrepreneurs that she's invested in through venture capital and her roles within venture capital. Uh, but we also get into some of those entrepreneurial traits that venture capitalists commonly look for. So again, it's a cool perspective. Kara being both an investor and an entrepreneur, and then now an investor again at Upfront. I could go on and on about some of my favorite moments because I had a lot of favorite moments in this conversation. 
Here's serial investor, entrepreneur, mom, blogger, expert, thought leader, Kara Nortman. Kara, we are here at Upfront Ventures, and I want to say thank you, first of all, for taking the time to talk a little bit about, one, what's going on here, mm -hmm. uh, but also your personal story, which is fascinating to me, from the blogging to uh, even your education before you got going down the uh, high-growth venture route. Sure. Um, and I was wondering if maybe you could take us back to the early days of your very first inklings of entrepreneurial tendencies. Yeah, you know, it's funny. Um, I, I, don't, I don't necessarily have the story of I was a seven-year-old and I created my first, you know, strawberry lemonade stand and tried to scale it to the universe. But um, we were just um, we were a pretty creative family. And my parents, my dad's a doctor. My mom um, is a teacher of the deaf, retired for, for a while. But it was a very, uh, we were very much about experiences as a family. My, my parents, the, the, the money they had, they always wanted to spend on going places and seeing new things oh, and cool. being exposed to the world. And, and even when we were home, you know, I, my brother and I, I mean, to the extent you could call them businesses, you really can't. But, you know, we would find sticks and carve them and try to go sell them as, you know, kind of artifacts in our neighborhood and things of that nature. But a lot of what we did was just travel a lot as a family. Um, and it was, you know, the Motel 6 on the side of the uh, the uh, Grand Canyon when we were younger, and then as we got older, uh, my father figured out a way to go um, for free, take our family for free on these crazy adventures. As he would he would trade his medical services for the oh, no adventure. Way. So we went to Leningrad back when it was Leningrad, and um, you know, um, all just all over the place. And then actually, and my grandmother was a demographer, so she traveled the world to countries that a lot of people did not have access to, and so took me to China in 86 when I was a small child and Indonesia and places where I, I was a redhead back then. They, people had never seen anyone who looked like me. So now at, the, at the risk of sounding ignorant, what does a demographer do? Exactly? Oh, a demographer <laughs> is um, somebody who um, basically studies population mm -hmm. growth and tries to be helpful to, comp to countries and figuring out how to manage their population growth. So Interesting. she was in... Iran and China and Mexico and at times when other people other people weren't. So yeah. I think that kind of exposed me to just this love of discovery and realizing there was so much kind of so much out there beyond um, you know beyond like this little myopic world that we live in. And to some extent, tech is like that for me. It's just sort of constantly digging and digging past any one of our individual limitations of how we see the world to kind of conceive of the impossible and where the impossible becomes the possible. And then I got also a little bit of exposure. Uh, my uncle was, you know, graduated from high school young, went to Caltech. His best friend was a guy named Vince Cerf, who um, is, you know, the one of the fathers of the internet. Um, yeah. So I think he invented TCIP protocol. Wow. And then he went, my uncle went up and worked on his um, uh, DARPA project at Stanford, um, which, you know, became sort of the underpinnings for the internet. So, yeah. I used to, I had exposure and I heard about it. We were down here in Los Angeles, but um, you know I heard a lot about evil VCs and um, you know kind of <laughs> commercializing this stuff. So when I finally got out into the work world, I was just always really interested in. Um, by the way, he found some good ones too. We ended up building. Okay. He ended up no no no. He just it was it was yeah. They weren't all evil. They, so he you had, saw some potential there. For, for I know it path. was a little bit like we hid from him that I was a VC for a while because that really? was yeah. Yeah, that was he had a bad early experience, but um, 
but instructs a lot of, you know, a lot of uh, kind of my understanding of the entrepreneurial mentality, I guess. Um, cool. But anyway, and then he went off to build a company that he took public. And anyway, I was just thought from afar what he did was pretty interesting. Did, did you absorb a lot of what was going on while that company was being built? Um, you know, again, we lived in different cities. So um, I just kind of heard the stories and was intrigued. And when I had my first job out of college, they said, what are you interested in? And I said, and, and everyone else was interested in the industries where you could make money really fast. And I said, technology, telecom, he did more telecom-y stuff. And they said, great, take, take the new woman and stick her in that new group called telecom. And so that's honestly, in a lot of ways, how I ended up kind of getting my foot in the door straight out of college. Really? Yeah. Interesting. So in that first role in the telecom department, uh, what was what were your day to day tasks? And... Yeah, well, I wasn't really in a telecom department, so I okay. straight out of college. I um, I went and worked at Morgan Stanley in what was then their private equity group. It was called Merchant Banking, and um, and again, it was it was sort of like telecom was kind of a newish industry. It had been dominated by all the regional bell companies and AT&T for years and years and was highly regulated. And I graduated college in 97 and there was this big deregulation act that came out in 96 that allowed, you know, kind of basically the infrastructure to be unbundled and new companies, which were then called Celex to start. And so long story short, um, I was involved in sort of building business plans and looking at new models around how to first deliver voice and then deliver data to small business, to consumer, et cetera. So, yeah, I mean, a lot of what I did ended up being more industry-oriented and research-oriented than that group was accustomed to. So I started reading books called, like, Optical Engineering for Non-Optical Engineers and <laughs> things like that. And I just found that I really, really was most – I was – the financial engineering piece of it was like a wonderful skill set to have, but what I was most interested in was what is this DSL thing, which you know sounds crazy now, but it was the cutting edge technology back then, and you know um, what are IP switches versus circuit switches, and when are they going to be deployed, and what is this going to mean for you know this like hundred year old copper infrastructure sitting in place? So that was the stuff. Like that's where the innovation, to a large extent, was going on back then, which was almost twenty years ago. Um, which to some extent is why now is is a, is such a fun time because it's all stuff we can touch and feel and it's like we've risen you know you can rise up the stack and actually really you know invest in companies and build companies that change like these massive end markets now whereas then it was it was the infrastructure yeah that makes a lot of sense you know I have a mentor of mine actually the last fund startup I worked at. Uh, was founded by Scott Jones, who's the guy who invented voicemail. Oh. And so he talks a lot about the early days, you know, where he was basically locking himself in a room yeah. and people were sliding pizzas under the door <laughs> to him and his team. And he was just kind of immersing himself much the same way it sounds like you were, you know, optical engineering for not optical engineers. Yeah, yeah. Were you pulling a lot of late late nights and uh, oh, yeah. working around the clock at Morgan Stanley? Yeah, there were some nights that weren't even nights. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. So, yeah, yeah. And then I always did. I, I mean, I, I found that when I, I mean, I, you know, I, I love to learn as many of us do. And I love to learn when there's a goal in, inside. And so I did, you know, I think um, I, I always tried to kind of like get to the fundamental building blocks of whatever whatever it is I was learning, um, go down that rat hole. So, so I did a lot of that when I, I interned for Microsoft at a time later on in life. And I took a, you know, I was like the only business school person who took a C++ class. And I'm like, what are you doing here? <laughs> uh, so I just need to understand how, you know, how, yeah. how this is going to work. So Do you I think can... it's important for entrepreneurs to understand, uh, <clears throat> if they're in the tech world, to understand the basics of... Um, 
Um, I, you know, I don't think there's one right model. I think there are entrepreneurs that fit very different profiles. And if it's a company where it's fundamentally about a tech innovation and that tech innovation is going to, you know, if you're inventing wireless energy or you're, you know, you're trying to do something at, with scale data for enterprises, like it's fundamentally about technology, then probably helps to just have a, a kind of a solid understanding of, why you're hiring certain kinds of engineers versus not, and at least like stuff architecturally. But for a whole lot of companies and most of the companies I invest in, great tech is a, a huge positive. Um, but I don't, you know, like the entrepreneur being a technical, the entrepreneur doesn't necessarily need to be technical. Right. They don't need to be building the. I think so. I was actually just in a meeting where somebody described, um, you know, kind of classified entrepreneurs as having one of three superpowers, right? Mm -hmm. It's deep in tech, deep in industry. Or the magic touch. The magic touch. Can you define what what? That but I thought that was meant? a great way to describe it, um, yeah. because right, like you, we, we'd we'd fund, you know, you'd fund an incredible tailor, right, who could revolutionize fit, you know, in some kind of specific way. Um, potentially, I'm just coming up with this ad hoc, but um, sure. but you, you can see deep industry experience in you know, certain areas, toy making, apparel, um, certain elements of brand, supply chain, et cetera, food, all of these different areas. You have industry experts, but, um, and tech is obviously well-defined. Magic touch, I don't know. You know it when you see it. Yeah. It's sort of, but the way I describe it is um, big thinkers who inspire people to want to follow them and who are never, who really aren't limited by what they're doing right now and have this ability to kind of constantly kind of challenge the status quo. And frequently those people really need to be complemented with a very process, very detail-oriented day-to-day person. Um, but people who are like that tend to build the biggest companies in the world. I think that in a lot of the interviews that we've had, a common theme has been sort of that if not mentor, then you know guide yeah. or um, people that have really inspired the direction of someone's career. Yeah. Uh, in those early days and some of those first roles that you were in, did you find some people that you were kind of like, hey, I'd kind of like to be like this person someday or Yeah, I mean, I would say for sure. I had mentors, I had wonderful mentors at every role I've ever had. And I still, in a strange way, feel like even... However, you know, almost 20 years into my career now, um, I still, I mean, I, I more actively look for mentors now than I did, you know, kind of back then because I think you're just more deliberate and overt and, and, and sure. understand your limitations more so. And in ways in the last few years, I've probably grown more professionally than I have at any other point in my life. But, but yeah, for sure. I mean, everywhere I worked, I had a mentor. Um, I didn't always have a role model. Um, there just weren't that many women to look at, I guess, back then, but, um, but, and there have been so many now that have emerged over the last, you know, 10 or 15 years, and there certainly were. I mean, I, I was fortunate enough to spend time with a woman MD at Morgan Stanley. It was the first female partner Morgan Stanley ever had, but I always wow. had wonderful people who, you know, beat me up and supported me and, um, you know, and, and, and those sorts of things. And then when I got to IAC, um, I had a wonderful female colleague who um, was a mentor to me as well, and um, and so and and again, always the the person I reported into, I think, was somebody who, I, it was always somebody I really um, respected. 
Maybe not always, but for the most part, somebody <laughs> yeah, I sure. really respected. Sure. So everyone has yeah. you know, two sides of the coin. Yeah, but. yeah, yeah. But I, I've worked, I've worked with and for some excellent people, um, and I still do, and I still learn every day from my partners in ways that continue challenge, continue to challenge me uh, to be better and think about you know kind of the way we make decisions and spend our time and 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 you know kind of why we do all this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Can you talk to me about that IAC mentor and maybe even how you got the role at IAC? Because we talked a little bit about oh, that sure. before we turned the mics on. Uh, yeah, the, the way I got the role at IAC was a, was, a, was a departure from the way I got every other role in my career. So um, uh, I was working uh, at Battery Ventures at the time, though I was working remotely for Battery. I had met my now husband, and they were kind enough to support me moving to New York City, even though I was working out of the Bay Area office. And um, I'd always wanted to get into an operating role and had nearly joined an operating company a couple times. And it was just, you know, I just wanted to do. And it was, it was, it was kind of sitting heavy on me. And it's literally the only headhunter call I've ever taken then to now to, that actually led to, to going and meeting with a company. And um, I went in and I met with the vice chairman who ended up becoming my boss and very much a mentor and taught me so much about deals and structuring and negotiations. But anyway, I went in and I sat with him and we had a 15-minute interview. He was clearly done with the interview and I was <laughs> very concerned because he asked me, he didn't ask me any substantive questions. And and I said to him, you know, you didn't you didn't really, you know, grill me on my background or any details, et cetera. You know, this is an intent, you know, a job that requires a lot of intense skill sets and I just want to make sure you're comfortable. And he said, oh, yeah, I just, uh, I, you know, the recruiter sent me your blog and um, so I read it and I know how you think and was, you know, was very satisfied with the way you think. I wanted to make sure you, he basically said, I want to make sure you're not a, a sociopath. <laughs> and, um, and, he, and then he said, I'm going to introduce you to the other folks in, you know, kind of what, what IAC was called the office of the chairman. And if that goes well, I think we're going to be able to do something. And yeah, it was an, it's an interesting story, I guess, because um, back then, not that many people had blogs. This was 06 that I was interviewing. Yeah. And um, I started blogging when I was at Battery as a senior associate, kind of because nobody else really wanted to and we sort of felt like it was a good idea and I'd always kept a journal um, since I was seven or eight years old so I started doing it and it uh, kind of changed the course of my career. That's great. Do you, do you think that's an important habit, the journaling, whether it's online or private? I think um, for me it is. I stopped doing it because I see forced me to um, shut it down at the time because it was... Doing it publicly. Doing it publicly, yeah. yeah. And actually I write letters all all the time. I write a letter every year to my kids on their birthday. I write, um, if I go on a very, if I have a very meaningful experience, I mostly now write letters to my kids. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I guess what I'd say is, um, uh, so I had to shut it down and I've just restarted blogging in the last six months and, and it's, it's brought me back to a place of kind of joy and it's daunting to get back into it. And one of my partners has one of the largest blog followings around and, and sort of like to think about how, how do I, how do, why am I doing this and what am I looking to get out of it? And so I've gone back into it sort of looking to get personal joy out of it. And so in that regard, it's been, it's, it's, a, it, it weighs on me. I haven't posted in, a, in like a, over a month now and I've got a post that's almost done, yeah. but haven't gotten out. But it's really, really helpful for me to just remove the noise in my head. And I find when I'm thinking about writing something, I go deeper into my learning cycle and I'm able to sort through the noise in my head more clearly. And so, and, and I just, it makes me, makes me feel like I'm in the flow. So for me, it is, I think everyone has their creative flow. So what I would say is 
figuring out what that is to get you out of the back-to-back -back constant interruptions, mobile devices, which I have a hard time doing personally. If there's something that does that for you, and for it may be for me, it's writing and running, but it may be sitting around and dancing or listening to music or, you know, but I find like those solitary, like we all have creative activities, even if we don't think of ourselves as creative, I find those to be really valuable. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I, and I really enjoy reading your writing. I, I read some of the ones from the last six months oh, cool. in preparation for this, this interview. So I'm going to have to go back into the archives, back <laughs> back to the you know early I moved or mid some of them over. Yeah. I, the, the moving platforms was a tricky thing, getting everything into sure. Squarespace. But yeah, but I moved some of it. Thank you. That's, from coming from you, that means a lot. Oh, absolutely. I, you are a far better writer than I am. I, I point that out for sure. But I, I would love to hear a little bit about your early career, um, early exposure to vetting deals and picking where to place the bets sure. um, you know, while you're at Battery and IAC. Sure, sure, sure. It's changed really dramatically over the years. Sure. And part of it is me kind of evolving, and a lot of it is also the, the world evolving. So Battery, in some ways, in my early days, I, um, I learned how to be a very credible inside sales rep. I, um, I was responsible for deal sourcing, and then Battery was wonderful at giving me and a lot of people in my role the opportunity to go far beyond that, uh, sort of like they let you go as far as you they thought you could go. So, but a lot of what I did literally was like dialing for dollars. So, and and back then it was you know I was reading magazines. I mean there weren't there weren't there weren't websites like TechCrunch and you know and and Recode and I mean there were there were not media brands like that that were accessible online. So I'd sit in my cold dark office in Boston in 1999 and <laughs> you know like pull out mass high tech and storage world and red herring and I'd go through and I would you know I I always had to be sort of interested in what the company was doing but I'd circle the CEO's name. I'd see if they had a website. If I could figure out their email address, I'd send them A/B test different emails to get them to want to get on the phone. Sometimes I'd literally just call them up and ask for the CEO. And um, and so to a lot of to a large extent, I think just getting to companies early in in that proactive way was an advantage back then. It's not anymore, right? Yeah. It, but back then it was. Um, yeah, and then Battery ended up giving me board seats um, pretty pretty soon thereafter. And um, so I got a lot of experience kind of through the height of the bubble and the bust. So I joined in 99, you know, Battery was an investor in Akamai, had, had went public, you know, maybe my second month there. Wow. So I, you know, I, I had one of those experiences as a 23 year old kid like, oh my this is how it works right <laughs> I worked with people who said you know one person in particular who said Gary go find me a deal but I'm not going to do a deal that's less worth less than a bill that can exit for less than a billion dollars which at the time was crazy because you know it was just the beginnings of those things happening now it maybe sounds less crazy and we won't get into that that whole yeah, that sure. whole universe because that that's a whole other thing but um <laughs> But in my mind, I thought, oh, if, they, if, if, if an investment gets done, it will be a billion-dollar company because my job is to find them. Their job is to diligence them and be a support in the process. But if a partner does this deal, it's going to be very valuable, clearly. Why else would we do it? So, um, so I got that whole experience, though, of then the world falling apart, getting a couple board seats because everyone was triaging, right? And I had to do things like go in and help restructure companies and cut cash flow. I had to, I had to let a CEO go and kind of move wow. him through that when I was like, you know, very, very young. Um, and so I think that informed a lot of my view on VC is sort of being in my first wave of VC from 99 to 02 and seeing the full boom and the full 
kind of bus cycle um, and, and having to live with a lot of that. And, and it continued to inform it because, you know, a number of companies that I was a part of, you know, as, a, again, associate getting going that were either like, you know, in trouble or questionable or just okay before I left to go to business school and came back to Battery, some of them weren't around and some of them went public, you know, and it was sort of like this very interesting perspective on how variable this, the kind of process of building and starting a company is, how much the macro environment can impact it, but also, you know, kind of like the types of entrepreneurs who are resilient and can bob and weave and can cut and can recover. And, you know, we had one company that was in bankruptcy um, and they gave it to me, which is never a good sign. Like if a company is being given to an associate or a senior associate, um, <laughs> and things aren't going very well, like it's probably, it's never a good sign for the company. So I was just babysitting it from like a reporting standpoint. And I came back after business school and it was, um, one of a high growth company and went on to become a public company and was, you know, recently acquired. So, wow. yeah, that's cool. Do you follow a lot of your past deals you're involved with? Yes. And no, you know, some, I mean, yes and no. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, certainly the entrepreneurs I was, I was close to, I try to follow them and, um, I, you know, I, 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 I do. Um, yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Well, I, there's so many things I could ask you about. And by the way, though, venture now is like the, and the way we do venture and even the way I did venture at Battery after business school very much then evolved into much more of a really be thoughtful about particular areas and build meaningful relationships and understand the psychology of entrepreneurs and the environment, you know, and all, it became much, it became a much different thing over time. Mm -hmm. But, um, but that training I got in the early years was, 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 was really helpful to all sorts of things I did later in my career, including running a sales team. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. We, we should definitely talk about that because that's, that's a beast in and of itself. Yeah. Um, the, the foundation that you got there uh, clearly has led to a very successful career in the investment world. I would love to almost fast forward to today with what sure. you're doing here at Upfront because yeah. I, would be, I would be sad if we didn't get a chance to talk about what you're doing now because yeah. you're clearly very excited about it. Sure. Um, can you and talk? I should, but I should say there were like 10 years in between the two investing kind of pieces yeah. where I was operating and I, I, started, I started the company the company I co-founded, which is called Seedling, and um, I'm still the, the chairman of and I'm very proud of, which is in the, you know, kind of revolutionizing play world, right? So toys and, and but really experiential toys that are, are pretty unique and we now sell in 20 countries around the world. So anyway, that was like a very big defining moment before I went back into, you know, VC 10 years later. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I could probably do an entire podcast on your experience <laughs> oh, at, no. at Seedling. Um, I, w I would be curious to know, um, were, were there one or two things in that experience of being an operator yeah. that really helped you level up as an investor? Yeah. I mean, it's been completely instrumental to why I'm back, you know, or instrumental and, and it very much kind of, um, the, the, you know, the, the impetus for coming back into VC has so many things to do with my experience ranging from Mark Schuster, who's now, you know, my partner was my board member and, um, you know, through all the ups and downs of starting a company, working with him kind of exposed me to a model in a city where I was born and, and where my family lives and I hadn't lived for 15 years, that was really exciting to me. But I think from like the substance of doing the VC job, so much of what we do is psychological. Um, and we developed a real appreciation for that when I was an entrepreneur. I mean, it's really, it's, 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 sometimes it's actually 
relieving pressure from the entrepreneur, right? It's sort of, yeah, you're a sparring partner around product and the right financing strategy and how to fund things and when to bring in what hire. But a, a lot of what I, I learned through my experience was, was sort of partnering with somebody who I just had great chemistry with and who psychologically understood what I was going through and could help me help relieve pressure for me personally was was really instrumental in um, you know kind of helping me get around some of my worst personality traits. So oh, um, so those are all things I think about. I mean, like the again the domain uh, the domain experience is certainly very useful, but um, but how can I be a great partner to my my uh, my my portfolio companies? Because at times, I mean, you're you're going to be the harshest critic to the company and the biggest cheerleader, and that honestly might happen in the same meeting. Um, and it's not about you, it's about them, and it's about you know how to make them do their best work. And and so, you know, those those are those are things I, I, I definitely developed an appreciation for. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's really interesting. You almost get a chance to zoom in and then zoom back out with yeah. a with a different perspective. Yeah, yeah. Again, I, I believe in life. Um, there is no one right path to doing anything. And I definitely, I, mean, I tell my kids this every day and I see it in some of our entrepreneurs, like I very, very much believe if you think you can do it, you can do it. Like you definitely need to have some sort of base skill set, but it's very frequently not the skill set you think you need to have, right? You don't need to have a degree in computer science to be a coder. You don't need to, you know, it, really in anything, right? With the, the power of like information and networks, like if you want to figure out how to solve a problem and learn something and you dedicate yourself to it, I feel like you can do it. And, um, and so um, say for me, I, I feel like my path has been very helpful, but I feel like there are 18 different paths into VC and there's a whole lot of different models that can work for people. Um, and I probably, you know, my, my, I end up working with a particular kind of entrepreneur that I have chemistry with who appreciates my path. Yeah, that's great. That, I mean, it's great to be able to do business with people you, you like and yeah. resonate with. That's right. That's kind of the dream, right? Yeah, yes. Yes, hopefully. Yeah, that's... Uh, if there's one thing I've learned with each wave of kind of going in and out of investing, it's uh, on this wave, it's do spend time with people you enjoy spending time with. And in, in, and then this, the corollary to that um, and some great advice I got from one of our kind of LA entrepreneurial heroes, a guy named Ted Mizell, who started Overture, um, who he was, he's a VC. He said, his advice to me when I went back into VC is he said, invest in things that you are fundamentally passionate about, not just because they're a great business. So you may see the best Bitcoin business in the world, but if you're not passionate about Bitcoin, you're gonna spend the next seven to 10 years of your life on that, kind of with that company. And you're not doing anyone, you know, a service by doing it. So that's probably, you know, the second big thing that I really keep in mind um, where I, I can't just love something from a business opportunity standpoint. Like I really have to be passionate about talking about it, learning about it, reading about it, talking to partners about it. Otherwise it just feels like work. And if you're not, then it doesn't feel like work. Yeah. yeah you know, if yeah, you are yeah. passionate about it, it doesn't feel like work. It feels like something you really enjoy doing. That's great. I'm really glad to hear that you're doing work that you enjoy doing. Yeah. Uh, when, when you're looking at these these startups, and, and I want to be make sure that we get you out of here on time. Sure. But um, you know, you mentioned some of the the people that were influential in the LA startups, and I want to finish with that with kind of what's going on here in sure, LA. Sure. Sure. Um, but in, in all the deals you see here at Upfront, are there two or three qualities in entrepreneurs, or even in the way that they pitch their startup, that you immediately yeah. pick up on and say, yes, this is 
this is who we want to invest in. Yeah, I mean, look, I think the, the qualities in the pitch kind of a little bit go hand in hand. I mean, you're, you're looking for resilience. Um, that's, I think, the number one, you know, kind of, well, the combination of resilience and self-awareness. Yeah. Those two things together, I feel like, um, you know, things are going to be hard. Things are going to go differently than you think they're going to go. And do you have that kind of personality that's going to just kind of run through them and be at your lowest of your low and pick yourself up the next day and try to figure out how that problem that yesterday felt like the world was ending. Um, and then self-awareness is sort of wh what do I need to do to make sure I can figure that out and am I being realistic about what I'm capable of doing right this second and, and, and where I may need to bring in others to help me. Um, those, those two things I think are important. Then there's all the other things kind of around it in terms of you know all the other characteristics you look for. In a pitch... You know, pitching is interesting because it's often your very first time you meet an entrepreneur, and often if they're in the middle of a fundraising, you don't have very long to get to know them, which is one of the reasons I love, I always tell people, if it's a fantastic team, I'd much prefer to get to know them during early, you know, even if it's a, a, a seed round or pre-seed round, if they're a great team, um, because we can get to know each other over six months or a year, and um, I can get to know if what they're saying in the meeting and what they're doing outside the meeting, how those two things relate. Like, you're going to get a million things wrong in the early days of a, of, a, of a company. So it's less about what exactly happened, and it's much more about who they are, what they thought they were going to do, what they ended up doing, and why they ended up doing it. Mm -hmm. um, it also just helps you understand that you, um, you're building a long-term relationship. Again, you're stuck with... I mean, one thing I think entrepreneurs don't think enough about is you're... When you take an investor like us, where we have a board seat, you're stuck with that investor usually for seven to ten years. <laughs> and so they should want to diligence you as much as you want to diligence them. Would you actually enjoy working with them sort of thing? So, um, And then in terms of the pitches, you know, I think a lot of things like really understanding what the business is about as quickly as possible. So what's what's the problem or the new opportunity you're creating? How are you doing it? Um, and then not trying to get a, all information in the first meeting, but being responsive to that first meeting and understanding. Yeah. Um, I always say, um, and this is something I learned when I was an entrepreneur, I would study for pitches, like pitches, the way I would study for a test in college. I kept, you know, a Google Doc, and I had all of my data points around the different ways I thought about market and, you know, this. I mean, just I, every meeting I'd come out of, and if there was a question I felt like I didn't do as well as I'd like to do or I needed to research some more, I'd go do it and I'd write it up. And so I'd study for it. And then the hardest thing to do is to not want to share all that information, is to, like, so I always tell entrepreneurs, if you walk out of a first meeting and you've shared 50% of what you wanted to share, that's, 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 a, that's good, yeah. you know, right? Yeah. Like 100% not good, 50% good. Too much. Um, yeah. And then a lot of it is just like not overselling what you don't know and being comfortable showing where your vulnerabilities are. Um, a lot of what I try to figure out if I'm really excited about a company is sort of like what makes this person tick which they're dynamic with their co-founder if they have one, you know, because the personnel stuff is the stuff that ultimately ends up kind of being the biggest determining factor in whether a company does, does really well or doesn't. Not always the case, but it's definitely an important one. That's really great perspective. And, and I want to make sure, um, I want to make sure that entrepreneurs have a chance to kind of digest that. So we'll add some notes to that and some of the blog posts that you've done in the past cool. so they can dive deeper into some of your, thoughts on that thank you <laughs> um, and, and before before we get you out of here on time I, w I was wondering if you might uh have one sentence of sort of why people might want to check out the LA Star. oh yeah scene. totally totally and um I wrote a good post on this one so I probably am not going to do it justice but 
know, I think, so I grew up in Los Angeles, and then I lived in lots of other cities for 15 years, New York, Boston, San Francisco, Seattle for a short period of time, and um, they're all great, and they all have a lot to offer, but I think Los Angeles, I, so I should say also, I came back to Los Angeles a little bit begrudgingly. Like, I came back oh, because I was pregnant with my first child, and I wanted to be near my family, who I'm really, really close to. So begrudgingly, I'd say professionally, but on a personal level, I knew that that was something that was really important to me. And in my first few years back, I, I would say I had a little bit of a chip on my shoulder, and I was, you know, would periodically come home to my husband, and I'd say, maybe I should think about taking this job up in the Bay Area, and super interesting, and are you crazy? We have a newborn, and I was being crazy. And um, over time, I've gotten to a place where I feel so proud of kind of the opportunity we have, the things we're doing here in Los Angeles, and the uniqueness of the experience that um, that now um, I feel sometimes like my Bay Area friends are jealous that we're down here in LA. But I would yeah. say it's a combination of things. Um, you know, uh, we're you know the largest economy in terms of like kind of city. We have the largest. We're very large for a lot of end markets that um, are fundamentally being changed by technology right now, right? So um, largest contiguous port in the Western Hemisphere, um, so anything to do with logistics, shipping, et cetera, automotive capital of the world. We pass New York as um, as, as the fa- – I mean, I, the, I don't know if they tell us the fashion capital, but we have more fashion jobs mm-hmm. in Los Angeles in the last couple of years. We surpassed the number of fashion jobs in New York. So, wow, I didn't even realize So that. fashion and apparel um, and is, is huge here. Um, we have a ton of um, – I mean, we have aerospace and defense. We have a ton of toy, consumer products. We obviously have – you know, kind of where the world's creative capital, one in seven professionals here, are consider themselves a creative professional. So in a world of storytelling and brand building and content and media, you know, which is not just a part of like the pure digital media, like I'm going to consume video over a new platform play, but it's a core piece of anyone who's trying to build a product that touches an end user, particularly consumers, but, you know, in some cases even businesses or small businesses. So We've got that going for us. Um, we've got a huge number. I mean, we have we graduate more engineering um, students every year than any region in the United States. Wow. Historically, we've lost a lot of them to other parts of the country. But um, yeah, I mean, we we graduate. I think it's eleven thousand engineering undergrads every year, and so you know our goal is to train them and keep them, et cetera. Um, and then I was going to say a lot of marketplace businesses, um, which is you know kind of um, an interesting moment of innovation, obviously in that particular part of the universe, uh, start here or come here as one of their first markets because we have such a tremendous amount of ethnic diversity, geographic diversity. Um, L.A., Orange County is sort of like 10 cities in other parts of the country. So you can build a really, really big business here in the greater Los Angeles area. We have a fantastic mayor who's really focused on, you know, kind of various different data initiatives and bringing the tech community together and incentives and things of that nature. And I'd say collect some of the softer side stuff. Um, As a city, we come together in a way that's very supportive. We root for all of our big companies to to win, and um, and and that feels good. It feels like LA as a city is trying to prove something. Yeah, uh, we have incredible weather. <laughs> <laughs> I've noticed that. Yeah, yeah. we have. A, it's a wonderful lifestyle. It was negative five when I left Indianapolis you know, two days ago. Um, <laughs> yes, and cost of living is um, significantly lower than than certain other cities like San Francisco and New York. Now we still have a lot to do, a lot to learn. We need. 
you know, kind of companies like Snapchat and Honest and, uh, you know, Just Fab and uh, SpaceX and a lot of the kind of the, the, um, the others that have gone public, Cornerstone on Demand, True Car, et cetera. We need companies who are, who are independent companies that stay independent to train and mentor the next generation of, of entrepreneurs so that when they go to, to keep talent here as opposed to, you know, like Beats, big acquisition for... Uh, to Apple or Oculus, big acquisition to Facebook, both companies in Southern California, but a lot of that talent was moved up north. So it's a good win financially for Los Angeles, and these were big companies were created, but to create the generational situation that Silicon Valley has and will likely always have in a greater way than I think any other kind of, uh, part of the world can aspire to, we need to do more and more of that. Um, yeah. And we just, you know, we, need, we just need more experience, more mentorship, we need more like what... I think it's my partner, Mark, or Fred Wilson calls recycled capital. Yeah. Um, it's still not easy to get, you know, kind of your earliest, earliest round. The irony is that we have a lot of wealth in Southern California. Um, so you do find companies that just are, they raise from family offices and private individuals and Hollywood and those sorts of things. You just have to make sure when you do that, you structure it in a way where the VCs can come in in the right way down the road. But yeah, we, we need all of those things, but it's, it's really a wonderful time and place um, to be here in Los Angeles, and we're thrilled that lots of Bay Area VCs are investing and coming down and spending time down here, and um, we've got a really wonderful crop of entrepreneurs. I'm very impressed by the caliber of entrepreneurs I've met out here, and I'm impressed by the people who are sort of the leaders in the community, like yourself, that are involved and care, you yeah. know, whether or not there's monetary outcome, you know, in the immediate future. It's, it's really great to see, and I, I want to acknowledge you for taking the time to do this interview Absolutely. and continue to share what you're learning along the way. No, thank you blog. for, uh, you know, capturing other parts of America, so of please come to Los Angeles. We love, we have lots of companies that relocate here for all the reasons I mentioned, but, um, but thanks, for, thanks for highlighting uh, us down here in the provincial parts of Los Angeles. Uh, we're sitting in Santa Monica, so. <laughs> yeah, Santa Monica, it's great. Yeah. It's great to be here. Thank you, Karen. Wonderful. All right, Matt, thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Of course. Thank you. That's it for today's episode of Powder Keg Igniting Startups, but I have a couple of other things I just want to remind you about. First off, you can follow Karen Nortman. Make sure you give her a follow on Twitter. Hit her up. Say thanks. Let her know what you liked about the interview. Maybe ask her some follow-up questions if you have any. And again, her Twitter handle is at Kara Nortman on Twitter. And then, of course, she is an active and avid blogger on her blog at Venture Inside. Com. Make sure you give her a follow there. Um, really, really awesome thought leader, and I love the insights that she shared here in today's conversation. Uh, we talked about a lot, so I just want to remind you, you can get all of the show notes and the full transcript on our website at powderkeg.co. Just a little reminder, Powder Keg is presented by Verge, which is a network of local communities with global reach for tech entrepreneurs, investors, and top talent growing companies beyond Silicon Valley. We have a ton of free resources for starting and growing your business at our website, which is just vergehq.com. We also host several events every month around the country. So check us out, see where we're going to be. Maybe we can link up in person. Would love to see you, meet you, have a conversation. And again, you can find all that information on our website at vergehq.com. 
Com. And of course, you can always find me, Matt Hunkler, on Twitter, and I'm just at Hunkler. I appreciate the follow. I appreciate the conversation and all of the ideas that we've been sharing back and forth over the last several weeks since launching the podcast. Thanks to all of our powder keggers out there who already left us a review on iTunes. Just a little reminder that you can leave us your honest review on iTunes by going to this link, powderkeg.co slash iTunes. Give us a subscribe while you're at it and we'll be forever indebted to you. It's your reviews, it's your subscriptions and your feedback that help us get better and reach more people to help them grow and scale their companies beyond Silicon Valley. And again, that link is powderkeg.co slash iTunes. We've got guests like Paul Singh from 500 Startups and Results Junkies. We've got Jay Bear from Convince and Convert and an early investor in companies like Buffer. And we've got Brian Clark from Copyblogger coming up soon on Powder Keg Igniting Startups. 